0: The following message comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. A common uh, conversation that often happens with those who are a little bit older. And just a note, we're going to be talking about older people and younger people, and I'm not going to put an age category on that, so I'll let you figure out which group you're in or how you want to uh, identify yourself in either of those groups. But a common conversation um, among those who are a little bit older, wiser, mature, is questions about the next generation. So things like, how will they do? How, will, how ready are they to carry on the truth of the gospel in the church? What about the dangers that they will face? Things like theological errors. And uh, if you've come on Sunday nights for the last few weeks, we've seen the extent of where those theological errors can take someone. Things that people will face in the days ahead. But not just theological errors, but moral issues. How will they raise their families to know and to love God? To, To serve them and put them above themselves? You know, We might even wonder, how will they even make it to the point of, of marriage in, in the way uh, that, that we understand it in, in this day and age and society? There's so much confusion about so many ways of, of living your life that for generations we're just sort of assumed that this is the way it is when it comes to gender, when it comes to roles in society, when it comes to how we even dialogue and talk to people who have differences than us. All of these things we can question and wonder. Not to mention the deep spiritual warfare that we have an enemy who is lurking and seeking and wanting to destroy. How will they persevere in the truth? So, the question then would arise, what should and what can those who are older, the older generation, do with those concerns? Will they just be something to banter back and forth about at breakfast on Saturday mornings? Um, Will it lead to worry? Will it lead to fear? What can a Christian do with those concerns by God's grace? And how can they be used by God to make a difference in the younger generation? And on the flip side, the reality comes up about what about those who are of the younger generation? There we go. Okay. So what about those who are younger? And they might have some similar questions or categories that come up in their minds. So some of the things and categories they're going to have to work through, such as morality. So um, social taboos that, again, at some point in our society wouldn't be a concern or wouldn't even be thought of among Christians that they're going to have to wrestle through. So what, what are they going to do with drinking alcohol, with um, styles of music, with forms of clothing, with entertainment options, with a plethora of things out there, decisions that they're going to have to make? In addition to that, those theological differences, right? So when it comes to living out their faith, what they believe in, what they're going um, to base their lives in, who we're going to be as a family as they walk forward in marriage and in their family, uh, making those decisions about who they are going to be and the decisions they're going to make. There's also the reality that they might have seen some poor examples of biblical living, whether it's in their home or in society, maybe people that they have respected, people that they have looked up to, and they've seen a failure uh, morally or theological drift. And that can, that can be devastating when they've looked up to people and um, they've seen uh, a poor example lived out in that way. Some of the other realities are the tough life questions or issues. So um, the danger can be to toss aside all of the good things that you've received and the good things you've learned when you disagree with a minor point. Right? The throwing out the baby with the bathwater, and that is a reality and a struggle that people are going to have as they grow. Um, if I come to a different conclusion or, or a perspective on something from my parents or from someone in the church that I love and respect, having the wisdom and discernment to realize um, that, that there are degrees of differences, but I can, I can have a difference without completely rejecting everything that I've learned and that, that I've grown up into. And then there's also just the, re, the danger of being led astray by close relationships whether it is a boyfriend or a girlfriend or um, other friends that draw them and that pull them away. And again, referencing the series we've seen on Sunday nights about the drift that is there, you know, many times people don't just wake up and say, you know, I think I'm going to wake up and be an atheist today. Or I think I'm going to reject a major section of Scripture today. There's reasons and factors that lead into that. And often it can be relationships, people that they know and that they trust. They give them a book, they go to a conference, they talk, they... They watch YouTube videos and there's a drift that can happen because of relationships. And so those are things that young people are going to have to navigate in um, their lives as they move forward in that way. So in thinking of those categories, how can the younger people do well and grow and and live uh, 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 into a mature and wise life? And then on the other hand, how can those who have a solid foundation, who have wisdom and maturity in years, be a blessing and help the younger in that way? How can we have meaningful relationship in that way, in a way that honors God? And this is something that um, as a pastor, but also as a husband and as a father of four young girls, that I often think about and, and, and wrestle with and pray, pray through this reality. And so some of this is just coming from a burden of my heart of how can we, um, by God's grace, ensure that we are um, leaving a legacy and raising those to love God and to serve him. And so I'd like to look at uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, but before we um, get into the specific verses, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork, a little bit of background that I think will be helpful as we think about this passage and as we think about what Moses is trying to do here um, in in the passage we looked at. And so um, to catch us up a little bit to where we are in Deuteronomy here, so Israel has escaped from Egypt. They have fled, and this is a a map and a sketching of where scholars think they might have gone. There's question marks in some of these, where the locations are. But roughly a route um, down into the wilderness, and because of their rejection and their lack of faith, sent back into the wilderness for 40 years of wandering as a punishment from the previous generation. And so Israel finds themselves up in that red red section there, we're going to zoom in a little bit more, um, close to the promised land. They're working their way up. Um, into about to go over. And so we find them, we find Israel now on the east side of the Jordan. So they're in the plain of Moab. And so you see the, the orange or yellowish area for the Moabites, and then there's a little section there where they find themselves um, north of the Dead Sea, but um, east of the Jordan River. And so that's where uh, we find Israel at this point. And as I mentioned, they are preparing to go into the Promised Land. And so Moses is about to pass things over to Joshua. He knows that he is not going to go into the land, um, but instead God has given him uh, the ability to look into it. And so this is a view um, looking into the promised land um, from Mount Nebo, where Moses uh, would have been somewhere in this area. So he was able to look in and to see the land that God had promised, but because of his disobedience, he is not able um, to go in and to lead them himself. And then this is a shot here looking back towards the plain of Moab, before they were coming over. Looks like it could be, I don't know, just down the road here, right? <laughs> it's pretty similar. Uh, that's one of the fascinating things. Since we've been here, a number of passages I read through scripture, I'm like, man, I think I've been there. That looks like just down the road. Um, so it's easy for us to visualize maybe what it would have been like. As they look over the river and they see this, this land flowing with milk and honey, okay, and we can, we can look over into a green, grassy, lush area in a similar way and think of what they might have been looking forward to but as they're about to go in, Moses has a last, a last job to do, a task um, that he has, and that is to give a message um, to prepare them on their way. And if, if you remember about the history um, of Israel leading up to this, we realize that the last generation really blew it. Um, they bombed out on their trust in God and their faith that God could lead them into the promised land. And really, the last many years of Israel's history could be summed up by wandering then complaining, then judgment, then wandering, then complaining, then judgment, and just over and over and over again where they didn't learn the lesson of all of the miraculous things that God had shown them. They doubted whether God could actually do it, whether God could actually fulfill his promises. And so they find themselves here, a next generation. Um, The new generation now would be probably under 60 years old or so. Um, the, The oldest among them were only about 20 years old when they um, when they received the law, okay? So they were pretty young when they, when they received it, and now they are um, the adults. They're the mature ones about to go in. And so, um, so uh, Moses has a message for them. And in the minds of probably, in, in Moses' mind, and also those, maybe Joshua and others, the question might come up, and that is this. Are they going to make it? Because all that they had seen modeled was complaining, failure to trust God, wandering, doubting God's goodness, doubting God's promises. And the question in, in, in their minds as they're going, getting to go in is, is it going to be different for us? Are we going to break the pattern and break the cycle? And so Moses has this message to give them to, uh, to warn them of danger, but also to root them in God and in his character and who he is, that he is a good God. He's a God to be trusted, to be feared, and to be obeyed. And so, really, in many ways, this whole book that we have as Deuteronomy is a message, a sermon to, from Moses to the people to warn them and to prepare them for what God has for them. Um, I was talking to somebody actually just before the service here, and it's interesting that um, our book, our word for Deuteronomy in English is, is actually different than um, the, the Hebrew word for the book. The Hebrew word literally means, these are the words. And you're like, wow, that doesn't really seem to say too much but it's actually just the first few lines or first few words in Hebrew of the book. And so our, our term for Deuteronomy comes from um, the ancient Greek term, which is Deuter- Deuteronomian, ooh, that's a, that's a mouthful, um, which really means second law or a copy of the law. And it's, it's called that and the, ter- the term that was given to it because really there's not a lot of new information or new revelation that Moses is giving here. Much of what he is telling them is found in the history uh, so far in, in Israel and in the other books of the law, so he's not giving them something that's brand new. What he's doing is is he's reminding them, he's reinforcing the truths that they should know, that they should see, um, that they should have seen or should have learned, and that's important because remember they had a bad example, they had a bad model of following God, and so he wants to root them in who God is and what God expects of them, and so this is where we find ourselves in chapter six earlier. Uh, if, if, as, you, as you browse back, chapter 5 deals with the Ten Commandments and further on um, about Moses' command for obedience and chapters 1 through 3, really a history of how it got them to this point. So chapter 6 is here, he is, he's going to sum up what the law is, why God gave it to them, and then he's going to urge them to be faithful. So let's read Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to start reading in verse 1 down to verse 3. reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Says this: Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. And so here, to begin with, Moses really sets up the intent of the law. Why did God give it? What was the purpose or the background for it? And the first thing we see in verse two is that the law was designed to lead them to fear God. Moses was trying to instill in them that God gave you his word. He gave you these commandments and these laws and all of this instruction so that you would fear him because he's a God who is worthy of fear. He is worthy of our respect and our honor and our fear before him. So he wanted them to have a holy awe and a reverence and fear before them. And then the second is um, to see the law connected to their prosperity, Remember, it had been years before, um, or of, of wandering for Israel. They'd been wandering around in the desert. And every once in a while, they'd come to an oasis. they come to a point of getting water. But their main sustenance had come through um, manna falling from heaven or quails going by. Okay? Not a normal way to get your food, right? Not a normal way for a people to survive and to, and to live. And so he's telling them, you're about to go into a land. You're going to have a place It's going to be a place to call your own. It's a place that God has promised to your forefathers, Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. And it's a place of blessing and prosperity. And God wants to use you to be a nation that can be a light to the world. God wants to give this to you. But he ties this blessing and prosperity to the word of God. He says in verse 3 that it may go well with you. You may multiply greatly um, in the land of the God of your fathers as God has promised you. And so they're looking out over this river into this land, and, and Moses is tying their blessing and prosperity to their fear of God and how they love him and how they obey him. And so if they keep the law, if they keep God's word, they'll receive blessing, and their land will prosper just like God had promised. And so um, you know, many times we, when we, we read through, um, whether it's here in Deuteronomy or especially like Numbers and Leviticus, and the law that's given in that way, we can think, you know, it seems so tedious. And it seems, you know, there's so many details and so many little, little things. Um, it, and at times we can miss the big picture that God is showing his love to Israel. God is revealing his love for them and he is expecting their love and their reverence back. You know, when we read about, you know, not eating shrimp or the hooves of the animals and things, we're like, wow, this is loving. This is God's love and his care. But all these details he was showing them His desire for them and their need to be holy. And so really the law is more than just a bunch of rules. It has rules, but it's more than just a bunch of rules. It was God's gracious means to show his love to them. And so the law was about showing God's love. And so how were they going to see this? How were they going to see the love of God in the law? And so we see that in verses four and five. So let's read uh, verses four and five. Moses says again, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so here, Moses is connecting. He said earlier about fearing God and obeying him, and now he's using another term. He's saying it is out of love. And so Moses is tying fear and obedience to love. And um, this is seen throughout Scripture, not just here. We see this in other passages which tie the idea, if you love God, you will keep my commandments. That obedience and love are tied together. And so um, Moses starts out in verse 4 by reminding them of God's character. That the character of God needs to be at the forefront of their minds and their hearts. And remember, all through their journeys of their rebelling and of their complaining and of them even looking back to their captors, Right? The gall and audacity to say, you know what, let's just go back to our captives. Let's go back to the Egyptians. Right? They fed us better. They gave us, they gave us better protection than Moses and Aaron and all these here. And so in many ways, they had forgotten God's character. they had forgotten that God is a God who will keep his promises, a God, who is holy, a God who expects and demands holiness and obedience. And so Moses wants to make sure they're not going to make the same, the same mistake. Um, verse 4 is one of the most famous passages in um, in the Old Testament and in Jewish tradition, known as the Shema, and often among faithful practicing Jews throughout history, and even those who are Orthodox Jews today, it's, re- it's repeated at least three times in the day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. To remind them that their, theirs is the true God, that God is unified. Right? Many of these other nations, they're about to go in and to conquer, and the surrounding nations, they all had their own little individual God or gods. Right? A God of rain, a God of fish, a God of grain, a God of fertility, and all these different little gods that they tried to placate and tried to make happy to get what they wanted. But Moses wants to remind them, no, our God is one. He is everything we need. He can provide everything that we need. And so he reminds them of their unity, and also that he's the true God, that Yahweh is the same one who brought you out of bondage. He's the same God who made promises to Abraham and to Isaac, and to Jacob, and he is the one who's going to lead you into, into the promised land through more miracles. And also that God is a personal God, that this God, he says, is our God, that he is a God we can call on in prayer, that we can trust in, and a God that we can bank our lives in. In fact, the phrase your God or our God is used um, 13 times in chapter 6. Moses is telling them, he is your God, he is our God. Do not forsake him. He is never far away. He is near to them. And so before we move into the section, which deals a little bit more about how we can pass on this truth, um, I just want us to think about today about how we talk about God. Do we talk about God in His full character? Do we think about Him and, and worship Him in his full character? But as we talk about others, do we talk about God in His holiness, in His reverence, that He is the only God that He is sufficient? In the midst of our complaining about how we want things different and we wish things were another way, what aspect of God's character are we forgetting and neglecting? And especially as we're talking about passing on the truth to the next generation, what are we communicating about our God by the way that we talk to others, by the way that we pray to God, right? How do we pray when we're burdened, when we're going through a trial? Do we pray to a God in the full character as he's revealed in Scripture? Or do we pick and choose the things that we want for ourselves? God, help me to get this. Help me to have this. Help me to be comfortable. Help me to have all these little things. Do we pray to a full God in his full character? Do we, how do we encourage others? How do we encourage others who are struggling? Do we? Um, again, do we have, point to and look at a very narrow view and strip of God, or do we say, here's all that God is. Here's all that he can be for you. God made this promise to you. He has made you his child, and he can bring you through it. Because you know... Um, the, the fluffy platitudes that you might see on Facebook or the little, you know, um, sunshine YouTube videos of phrases that build up your positive esteem and all that, it might make you feel good in the moment and in that, that glimpse as you read it, but those are not the things that are going to sustain you. That, that building up of your pride and ego is not going to sustain you through the trials and through the hard times. So remembering the character of God, rooting yourselves in it, and then talking and acting and praying in light of that. So, so far in our passage, Moses is reminding them, here's who God is, here's why God's given your law. And now we see, how should we love God? How should we, um, how should we move forward in, in, in honoring God and passing it on to others? And so verses, uh, verse six tells us this, says this and it says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then we're going to move into verse 7 in just a minute about practical ways to do this. But the call is to love God. The call is a complete surrender. It's the language that you would use if you wanted to describe a king to his subject. Right? Think of someone who is desperate for help. He is desperate for protection from a king. Or maybe, maybe he's pleading because he's in debt and he needs, he needs um, some forgiveness of a debt or something that's going to crush his life and change his life forever. A supplicant coming to somebody who has all power, who has all of the means to take care of what the person needs. A subject to a king. Some of these passages that, co- that connect and tie love for God with what God has commanded. Exodus chapter 20, it says this, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. But that is the character of God. Jesus uses similar language in John 14 to say, if you love me, you will keep my commands. It was also, um, this passage was cited by Jesus. Oh, there we go. It was cited by Jesus in Matthew 22 when he wanted to summarize the law. He says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And you see, this is the best summary of the law because it gets at the heart of God's purpose in giving the law. One author put it this way, talking about Galatians 3, about our justification. To love God as it commands us to is to place oneself within the orbit of his saving grace. Because this Shema, the heart and core of the Old Testament law, was designed to be put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So to love God as, as God has given to this way is to put us in a place of God's saving grace, that we cast ourselves down just like a supplicant at the king who can give us everything, indeed who demands everything from us. And so this is at the heart of the law, that it, that it was to be done out of love for God. Loving God with your heart means that you have God's words flowing through your mind and your heart, that it fills us and it controls us. So we've seen that God gave the law to teach Israel to fear and love them, and that this love means giving everything to God, fulfilling the commands that God's given to us. But we still get to the question of, okay, how can we pass this on? As Moses is looking at this crowd, how are they going to continue? And actually, uh, in, a, in a superior way to the, to the past generation, how are they going to be faithful in, in the task that God has given? How is it going to transfer over? So this is the question of the older guys sitting around asking how the next generation is going to do it. This is the parent who's concerned over their rebellious teenager. You know, they pray and they cry over them. They know the truth. We've shared it with them, but it doesn't seem like they care. This is a young parent who's just starting out, and they're just overwhelmed. You know, if you want to see an example of somebody who's dependent and who's like, I need help here, just take a young parent, right? That first night where the child's screaming and you don't know what to do, okay? You're Googling everything. You're pulling every book out that you know of. Um, she's texting and calling her mom and her relatives and anybody who will give some help and advice here. But a young child who's bringing someone into this world, into a world that is is not a world for righteousness, that is not looking for truth and to build others up and to love and serve God. And you can think, man, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make it? How are we going to lead this young one to love God and to serve him? This could also be a teenager who's not quite sure that they buy into everything they were taught that is questioning or wrestling through, I'm not sure about this. How does this match up with life in my experience, and my perspective? And as we said, this is Moses as he anticipates handing things to Joshua who will lead them into the land. Remember, Moses had been with these people for a long time, right? He knew them. He knew what they were like. And he's you know, thinking, all right, Joshua, this is yours now. This is, uh, by God's grace, you're the one to lead this. And so this brings us to our key idea, our main idea here, of how by God's grace we can pass on these truths in a way that honors God. And that's this, that love for God must be taught and it must be caught. That, others, that we need to teach it and they need to catch it. So love for God must be taught and caught. If this new generation was going to succeed at loving God and following his ways, the God-given means to do that was through those who are in leadership passing on and directing them to know and to love God, And this is true for us today, that if we are to pass on a godly heritage, if we are to pass on even here in our church body and thinking of those who are coming up, it must be taught and caught. So let's look at verse seven, as Moses moves into um, this passage of how we pass it on. Verses seven through nine. Moses says this, "You shall teach them diligently uh, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so the first group that that we're addressing here is the teaching, that these things need to be taught. Our English word used in in various translations, the New King James, NASB, and ESV, is this word um, for the word teach. Um, It comes from the word that um, on its face actually means to repeat or to give repetition to something. And so, you know, we have phrases like repetition aids learning or, um, you know, you practice or what's, what's practiced is permanent, um, all of those ideas. And so the idea of teaching here is it's something that's repeated so often and so many times that it sticks in their head. Um, the NIV translates this word impress, to impress something. And, you know, to give you an idea, the, the image that comes to mind um, for me at least, is a sculptor, right? You, you think of the art, artistry that's involved of taking this block of granite or some type of stone and just slowly, 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 one chip, one little tap at a time, knocking away all of the outside to leave this amazing image behind. And so in a similar way, the command here that Moses is giving is you impress and repeat and repeat and repeat enough to where it sinks in their hearts and in their minds these things about God, that he is true, that his word is powerful, we need to fear and to obey him. Another image that comes to mind, speaking of the Olympics, is a winter Olympic sport that I always find fascinating. I never watch it in between, but every four years, I enjoy watching um, cross-country skiing, okay? And cross-country skiing is interesting because normally you think the whole point of skiing is to go really fast down a hill, right? But with cross-country skiing, often it's flat, sometimes even uphill. If you've ever seen these hills that they climb, up skis, it's incredible, the strength and the stamina. But with most tracks, whether it's professionally or for recreation, um, usually, unless you're going out by yourself, um, it's not a completely blazed trail. Often you follow these these deep impressions that are there. And so the idea is you actually just want to stay in those two lanes and in those tracks because it's going to be much smoother and you're going to be able to move a lot quicker um, on your way. And so in a similar way here, when Moses is telling them to repeat and repeat and impress and teach, what he's saying is that just like these grooves, you need to impress and you need to, to, um, to etch in these grooves that those who are coming behind can follow and can honor God and, to, and to, um, to, to pass on in that way. And so he is commanding those in leadership to press on, to teach, to repeat, to impress these truths on those who are hearing. And in just a minute, we're going to talk about what that means, some application but then the second group that he uh, mentions here is those who are on the receiving end, so those who are catching it. And um, the, the point I want to make here is that at, there are times for formal instruction, okay? So something like what we're doing here in a sermon or our Sunday school, or even with our children, we have Sunday school lessons, and there's formal instruction and in teaching, and that's good, there's times for that. But much of the truth that we learn and absorb in life is not found in formal settings, Right? So some of what you learn and know in life is in a classroom. It's through school and other things. But think about some of the most valuable lessons that God has taught you. Maybe it's come through hard knocks, making mistakes, others coming along. But often it's found in relationships with others, right? It's the dad who's seen how you've blown it and come alongside and trying to help you. Or it's the mom who is patiently for the hundredth time reminding you to not lose your patience with your brother or sister, not throw the shoe at him or smack him or whatever you're tempted to do. And so it's instruction, it's teaching, but it's done in life. And so that's the idea here with the idea of caught. That it's taught, we, we formally teach, <clears throat> we impress, we, we, we give truth in that way, but much of it has to be caught in life as we go. And so starting in the second half of verse 7, we see this. Some of the phrases that, that, that drive home this truth. For example, when you sit at home, and so when you're just sitting around your house, Moses says, When you're there and there's a time of inactivity, there's questions you can ask. There's little nuggets of truth in ways that you can encourage. Then it says, when you walk along the road. So activity, when you're on your way somewhere, okay? And you know we think we have long commutes, but for them, if they're gonna go down to the feast in in another city or they're on their way to harvest or something, often they're walking for hours or days at a time. And so there's opportunity as you're walking when you're doing things in activity. Then he says, when you lie down. So the ending of your day, the closing of of the activities of the day, there's opportunity to instruct and to lead and to teach in truth. And then when you rise up at the beginning of your day, as you begin the task, you know, as the dad's about to go off into the field and the mom's, um, you know, making some pottery in the home or whatever the tasks are for the day, there's an opportunity at the rise at the start of the day to instruct and to teach. And just in case they're going to miss it, the fact that all of life is a time for instruction and teaching, he says this, he says, um, to bind them to your arm and to your forehead. And so the idea here that take God's truth wherever you go. In other words, there is no place where you should be and where your family and where those that you have influence around you, where you should be, where you do not take God's instruction with you. Don't leave it behind. Take it with you wherever you go. And of course, in later eras, this was taken in a very physical sense with the phylacteries that they would tie to, to their arm or to their forehead. Um, I think the idea, though, here that Moses is after is not physically taking, you know, bits of Scripture with you, but the truth of God, the instruction, should be with you wherever you go. And so God's truth should follow you wherever you go. There's no place where you should not be teaching and instructing. And then he further reinforces it by saying, in your home, in your property, in your dwelling, um, write it on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so, again, there's a practice, even in Israel today, of a small box which has... Scripture in it, often the Shema and Deuteronomy 6, four that you touch on the way, okay? Um, but the idea here is not just a, a physical plaster home with Scripture. By the way, it's a great thing to do if, if, you, if you want to show God's truth and, and be reminded. But the idea that there is nowhere where you set foot where your family is where God's instruction is not there. That it must be caught in the activity of life. That it is around and it is surrounding you. And so um, people must catch it. They must see, our young people must see that it's not just about coming on Sunday and dressing up and, you know, bringing our Bibles and coming and hearing and receiving on Sundays, but all through the week they should be absorbing truth. They should be absorbing and learning God's truth. And then Moses spreads it out a little bit, not just to our home and just walking and activity, but then he gives a few other categories for how it must be taught and caught, which we'll just reference quickly but he goes through um, their history and their memory. Um, Verse 12 uh, says, for example, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of your house of slavery. Now, why would Moses have to say that? Why would he point out lest you forget? Because who had just forgotten for (laughs) over over 40 years? The past generation. They had forgotten who God was. They forgot that the God who brought them out of Egypt could deliver them and bring them into the promised land. And so he says, don't forget. Forget their memory and keeping that alive. Then in thirteen to fifteen he talks about their worship. He says that fearing God means worshiping only Him and nothing else. He says, You shall not go after other gods. And we often think of worship in terms of our heart and our mind, which is true. But if you were living in Israel in this time, you would realize that worship was very practical. Okay? The the feasts that were there were very practical. But in addition to that, there were offerings to be made. There were thanksgiving offerings. There were offerings for sin that were committed. There were peace offerings to be done. There were rituals of cleansing and physical things that you were to do in order to, to honor God and to keep his word. And so in the, the, the daily routines of worship to God, they were to instruct and to teach. And here I would just uh, press home a little bit to, especially to parents or grandparents as you have opportunity how are you instructing your children and your family in worship? Do you ever pray together as a family? Do you ever, instead of just relying on the pastors or the Sunday school teachers, do you ever open God's Word and share from it? Um, do you sing together? Do you pray together? Do you minister in that way? But then even thinking about how you train and direct them as they're here as a church family. Do you prepare them for worship well? Okay, And this is really practical. Do you help them to go to bed at night <laughs> so they're not a crank and you know, a mess in the morning? Do you set things up and prepare the day well because Sunday matters. We're gathering together as a church family. We're going to block out time so we can be, be sure that we're here. Do you help them to know how to listen, right? So helping them maybe learning how to take notes or how, how to pay attention and to receive God's word, okay? Not just in a, in a ritualistic way or to please mom and dad, but because God's word matters and we want to train them how to hear it, how to listen, how to obey God's word. Do you talk about it after, Asking them simply what they learned in Sunday school. Okay? Pointing at the paper that they did or the drawing or whatever and ask them, what did you learn about God today? How can you obey God better today through this? And so being intentional when we gather for worship in a way that honors God. And then furthermore, some of the rituals that were there we see in verse 20 on. Some of the regular activities that happen. In verse 20, notice it says this, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies? and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, okay? Can I translate that today? Dad, why do we have to do this stuff, right? Why do we always go to church? Do we always have to go every Sunday, right? Do we always have to do these things? Why do we give our money to the church? Why do we we set aside so much of it to come and to give in this way? Or why do we serve in these extra activities and fellowship things? When those questions come up, we point them back to God and to his faithfulness. Here's why we do it. Here's what it's all about. And then finally, the last category are stories. Verses 21 through 25. um, Again, Moses reminds them, you will tell your son, starting with Pharaoh and slaves in Egypt and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, go back and tell God of his faithfulness. And we ought to do that in teaching them scripture. But I would also say this, and this is more than just parents or grandparents. This is everyone here, especially um, those who are more mature. God's given you experiences to testify and tell about what God has done to say, listen, let me show you, let me tell you how God has been faithful to me through the trials and through the circumstances to impress and to, to show them about why, it, um, why God is worth giving our lives to. And so Sunday should not be the only day or the only time of instruction for our kids. We ought to fill our lives and our week and our time with them. And so how can we pass on that truth? Just look for opportunities to talk about God. Look for opportunities to impress on them the truth um, that is there. And I would say, we'll get to some specifics in a second, but parents, one thing we can do is give them opportunities to talk to older people. Maybe having them over or intentionally seeking out people who can be an influence and to have an impression on your children. So, before we get into a couple specifics, one question that might come up about how our love for God must be taught and caught is this. All right, so Pastor Tim, you're looking at Deuteronomy 6, foundation in the Old Testament, in the law, Why are we looking at this today, right? We're in the New Testament era, we're a church, we're not Israel, so is this just for Israel? And to answer that quickly, uh, I want to look at just a few quick passages that actually reinforce this truth in the New Testament. And so seeing this setting, the principles that are there carry over to today. And so Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission, call on us to make disciples of all peoples which includes those among us, which includes the new and rising generation. Then, another fascinating passage. Um, if you would turn there, Acts 16. Acts 16. So Paul here is in the context of his ministry, and he is, he is getting co-workers and co-laborers. And so Acts 16 verse 1 says this, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and then it goes on to say that Paul wanted Timothy to come and to minister with him. And so um, the parallel here is found in the book of First Timothy, and so it's likely that Paul or that Timothy was pretty young here. He could have been mid or late teens as Paul asked and requested for Timothy to come to him. And um, so Paul's ministry here was a ministry of mentoring, not just to Timothy, but to Titus and to others. And so he poured and invested in others to live on and carry on this truth. Ephesians chapter 6, right? Children are to obey their parents. And this is like every parent's anthem here, right? You're to obey me. You're to honor me. Well, how are they going to learn obedience? How are they going to learn to honor? Do we just just quote it at them, just rebuke them, just throw it at them? Or are we going to model it? Okay? And the hard part of that for parents is, if we're going to expect and demand obedience, we have to be consistent. We have to be faithful in disciplining them when they're not obeying us so that they realize this is a big deal. If we just spout at them every once in a while, hey, you need to listen to me. Hey, you need to obey me. But we're not following through and being consistent and faithful and, and correcting them and in staying on top of it, they're going re- to think in their heads, this isn't really a big deal. They just say that when they're mad, Right? And they just want me to conform instead of saying, God has commanded me as your parent to lead you in this way. And so we need to lead and to instruct them how to obey, how to honor their parents in a way that honors God. A few other quick passages Philippians 3, verse 15 and 17. Paul says that those who are less mature ought to imitate, ought to, ought to copy those who are more mature. And so that implies two things, right? One, that there are more mature that are a good example. So for those who have experience, those who are more mature, to live our lives before God in that way. But second, that means those who are less mature ought to look to them as an example and have opportunity to see that in their lives. Again, Timothy is an example in 2 Timothy 3 about how he was taught the Scriptures. This will be the Old Testament. He was taught the Scriptures from a young child, that his parents, his mom, and his grandmother impressed these truths to them. It's likely that his dad was an unbeliever, it references him to it as a Gentile. And so they impress these truths to him and it's stuck in his life and in his heart. And then finally, uh, Titus commands all older people to teach and to communicate God's truth. Now, if you think, well, I, I can't get up and do a lesson or, or lead in a conference or some kind of formal truth, realize that there's more opportunities to teach than just that, but that God can use you to influence those who are younger. So, you're trying to get off the hook, (laughs) the New Testament says you're not off the hook. We need to impress and pass on God's truth in that way. And then one final point before we get into some more specific application, the question could come up, well, does this promise that children who are raised in this way will automatically follow God? Because you could take this, our truths back in Deuteronomy, that if you follow this, if you teach it, here's how it will automatically happen, that it will automatically result in a passage that's, that's often used in this context is in Proverbs. Proverbs 22, which says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so some have taken this as a claim of promise that if I share the gospel with my child or I impress it on my grandchild or young people here, they will 100% absolutely love and follow God. And the reality is that that's just not always the case. And so I think this passage, for example, ought to be seen in the light of Proverbs as a general truth a proverbial statement that if we, if we raise them in this way and teach them this, in this way, more often than not, by God's grace, they will follow in this truth. But the reality is that people will decide to reject God's truth. That even those who know the gospel, even those who have been told time and time and time again, um, um, often do reject and, and say, this is not for me and walk in that way. Maybe for a while, maybe for years, or maybe for their whole life. Life, and so um, instead of being discouraged though by that reality, we ought to see that God uses means. He uses means such as telling and communicating the gospel to bring them to them. And so, um, so for a parent or a grandparent or a loved one who is grieving over someone who has walked away from the things that they've known or is not embracing the gospel, I would say take hope and trust in God. Pray and ask God to work in their hearts and in their lives. And by God's grace, as much as we can, and in the capacity we, we can continue to point them to God and to his grace and to lead them in that way. And so it doesn't, it doesn't give us an excuse not to communicate those truths. Instead, it, need to, it ought to press us further in to c- communicate God's truth and to help them in that way. All right, so application. What does this mean? What are some nuts and bolts of how we can take God's truth to pass on God's truth um, for those who are coming behind? And the first group is for those who are older. And I just want to summarize it this way, is to talk and to walk in the truth. To talk and to walk. So what we say, how we communicate, how we impress and teach to line up with God, but then also in our lives. So let me just go through, I have a list of here, not going to get through all of them, but some ways that you can be used by God to communicate God's truth to the next generation. So... Um, Looking around at all the young people we have, and it's a blessing that we have so many young people, from babies all the way up to teenagers, and even those who are college age, which we're going to put those in the category of young people as well, who can use help and instruction. But looking around at those who could use instruction and encouragement. You know, some who are being raised by one parent, as a single parent. Some who have both parents in the home, but only one as a believer. Only one is reinforcing God's truth. How can you be used by God's grace to come along and to encourage to encourage that parent wanting to raise them to know God, but to encourage that parent. Um, we have many teens and young people who come through our building, through Awana or through Youth Group, through VBS and other times, some who come from without a biblical perspective on home and family and God, homes who are a wreck in that way. And so how can you pray and, and serve and help volunteering? Um, coming up with Awana, we have opportunities for those who can, who can serve and use their gifts in that way. So looking to impress those who are outside of our church um, with the, the truth of the gospel. We have some parents who are newer believers, right? Who are still trying to understand and learn God's word for themselves so they can pass it on. And so some of the things we're talking about, you know, how to instruct and in, expect obedience and to, to raise them to know God, they're still trying to maybe catch up and to figure out what God's word says. So how can you come along and encourage them? Say, hey, you're doing great. Keep, keep going, keep growing. Keep loving God's word and, and look for practical ways to encourage or help them. Maybe taking them out for dessert and, and just saying, do you have questions? Is there any way I can help and be a blessing to you? Um, there are some who have solid parents who are here, but maybe grandparents or extended family who aren't in the area. Okay? This is testimony. I can say this here. But we're so blessed and so thankful for adopted grandparents and, and, and um, aunts and uncles who can minister and encourage them. And so some of the wisdom that those who are older that God's given to you, you can impart, especially those maybe who don't get that on a regular basis. We also have a variety of those who are in older teen years and college years who are trying to figure out life, right? They're trying to figure out, am I going to go to college? What's it going to look like? Am I going to do trade school? Am I going to move away? Am I going to stay? What opportunities does God have for me here? Am I going to stay in this church or go to another church after I get out of the home? All of these things are big decisions they're wrestling through. So how can God use you who have experience? You've learned through making good choices and making uh, foolish choices. How can you be used by God's grace to help them? And looking for opportunities um, to come alongside. And on the teaching part, you say, man, Pastor Tim, I, I am not the one to stand up and lead a class or lecture or organize notes and things that way. But looking for little ways. Maybe you can hire a couple of teen guys to come and do some yard work. And then when you're taking a break in the shade, they're just talking about life and asking them, how did you come to Christ? Let me tell you my story. And encouraging them, looking for practical ways. You know, showing up to a, to a kid's baseball game and you know cheering him on and trying to be a part of his, his life and his family and encourage him. Looking for little ways that you can encourage and help them in that way. And so trying to look for opportunities um, to impress and to make a difference and to, to share and pass on God's truth. And then the last thing I would say, are two, two more things. One, those who are older and passing on God's truth Give them things that will stick and that will, will minister to their life for the long haul. Okay? We all have hobby horses. We all have opinions. We all have things that really get us frustrated, get us fired up. But thinking about, what am I passing on? Am I passing on my opinions about something that's the big deal right now, but in 15 years, are they even going to know about it? Is it going to be a big deal? You know, the, Whether it's the politics or sports or whatever, the things that get us all fired up, are we passing on the things that really matter? the things that are going to anchor and root them in God and in his word. And then the last thing is, if you don't know what to do or what to say, you can pray. You can pray specifically for those who are instructing, those who are passing on God's truth, using passages like this or in Ephesians 6 or Titus 2 to pray for those who are doing the work. Because, you know, just by way of personal testimony, it's hard. It's hard to raise children to know God and to love him, to be consistent, to, to want to instill that and to have that balance of love in grace but with discipline and instruction and so praying for God to work in that way all right those who are older you can you can take a breath we're done with you for a second um, those who are younger okay because this is a dual thing it's not just passing on God's truth it must be absorbed and so here the command is to hear and to heed the truth to hear and to listen and to do it so what are some ways for those who are younger <clears throat> and by the way um, many that, that Moses is addressing here would be considered younger, those who are not mature in the faith um, or, or in, um, in following God. And so how can, um, how can they learn in this way? One is, as you listen to parents or grandparents, an older friend, somebody who's older and wiser in the church, a teacher in Sunday school, is to listen to them knowing that they can be a means of God's grace in your lives. Now, I'm not saying they are Scripture because they're not. And at times they'll make mistakes, at times they'll, they'll distort things or not get everything right, but realize that the person who sets aside biblical instruction from a parent or someone who cares for them or cares for their souls is doing it at their own peril. That you are foolish if you're setting aside the wisdom instruction that they are trying to pass on to you. Proverbs and the rest of Scripture has strong, strong warnings for those who are acting the fool and setting aside the truth that you've been, you've been given. And then I would just say in formal settings, when you hear the preaching from God's word here on Sundays or in youth group for the lesson time or in other settings, is how are you absorbing scripture? Are you listening and intently paying attention for those who care for your souls and are looking to instruct you in that way? Do you just blow it off? Are you not paying attention? Do you just talk to your friends and just blow it off like not a big deal? Are you intently looking and listening for God's word? And I would say this too, That, you know, in the end, as you grow to be an adult, you're going to reach a time where you're going to make decisions. And the decisions you make are going to have a big impact on you and, by God's grace, your spouse and your family. And there are times in which you're going to come to a different perspective than your parents or than your grandparents or even maybe the way you were raised in a church. And at times there's latitude for that, of coming to a biblical position that's different than your parents. But here's what I would say is two things. One, you ought to be very cautious and and careful as as you come to decisions like that, to realize, am I doing this based on God's word and God's principles, or am I just doing it because I can't stand the way I was taught, and I'm going to do anything I can to run away from that. To be wise and careful about the decisions that you make. And then the second is to be careful about how you influence others in making decisions. Right? So you say, I've come to this decision based on biblical grounds and principles, but making sure you're not just bringing others along with you, who are not thinking through those issues and making decisions in that way. And I would just say, you know, by by word of testimony here, I've seen many peers and many friends who grew up the same way, they had the same truth that I had, and then you see the trajectory of their life, and 15 years later they're over here, and, you know, either not going to church or not going to a church that preaches the gospel, the, the lifestyle and the attitude of their life, and you're like, how did they get there? How did they get to a point of making decisions that way? And often it was just one step at a time. It was casting off some wisdom here. It was, I'm going to do it my own way here. Yes, 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 I know I'm still going to go to church, I'm still going to read the Bible, but I'm going to kind of do it my own way. And then you see over the course of years, doing it their own way where that leads. And so being careful in, in the wisdom um, that you've been given and, and <clears throat> um, carefully embracing it and not setting it aside. <clears throat> by God's grace, I was raised by parents who knew and loved God. Um, both of my grandparents actually served in some type of a ministry capacity, and I had that example, and I praise God for that. But as I look back on my life, it wasn't only my parents or grandparents or family that made a difference. Um, There's other, especially men in my life, that made a difference. I had a third grade Sunday school teacher, Mr. Dennis, who took us, you know, crazy bunch of knuckleheads on this canoe trip down the river, okay? There was a whole lot of more fun and enjoyable things he could have done on a Saturday than to give up his time in that way. But he patiently taught us God's Word in in calling us to obey God. I had a fourth through sixth grade teacher. If you're wondering, man, you had him a lot of years. It was a small school. He taught fourth to fifth, and then he moved up, or third to fourth, and he moved up to fifth and sixth grade. So it wasn't like a one-room schoolhouse, okay? We did have different rooms and stuff. But, um, you know, that that was probably the peak period in my life of rebelling against God and his truth. And this teacher was so incredibly patient um, in dealing with us in, in our rebellion and our attitudes. I remember at times him coming to us you know, he disciplined us, he, he, whatever the system was, but then him coming to us in tears of like, boys, just submit to God and, and follow him and trust his word and the care that he showed in my life. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I have a few others here. But we moved um, at that point to North Carolina, and by God's grace, a new set of friends, a new set of influences. I had a youth pastor, um, Pastor Weber, who again, man, all that he put up with. We just loved to pick on him and him trips and, you know, Mocking him for his, his lack of hair and playing pranks on him and all the things that he put up with, and yet he faithfully called us to love God. <clears throat> Again, with tears in his eyes, saying, don't turn from the truth. Believe God. Trust him. Another man who had an influence on my life, and I don't even recall his name, but he was an older man who saw the growth in my life through later teenage years, um, times where I would, you know, just, just praying and asking for God's help and, and just seeing that. And he came to me one day, and I didn't know him super well, but he said, Tim, have you ever considered giving your life to ministry and a pastoral work and church ministry. And I really hadn't up to that point. But him just seeing God's work in my life and encouraging me and saying, this is a good thing. Consider this work in your life. <clears throat> the last one that I'll mention, when I was in college, uh, served in a small sort of country church, a faithful pastor. He was seminary trained, a gifted teacher, and yet he ministered in this, this little tiny church of about 75 uh, people, um, was the max who ever came. And, and on Sunday afternoons, he let us come over to his house. And we just drilled him with questions. Some of it was theological, some of it was pastoral. How do you do this? How do you do that? And after a long Sunday of ministering, he faithfully answered our questions and encouraged us and and pointed us back to God's word and said, you know, especially us guys going to pastoral ministry, like know the word, love the word, teach the word to God, of God to people. And so all of these ways I can look back in my life. And yes, some of it happened in a message when I was in a church setting or in a classroom setting. But many of the ways in which I absorbed God's truth and I was encouraged to grow was through everyday conversations. It was through people investing in my life and trying to pass on God's truth.
1: And so those who are
0: older, who are you impressing? Who are you teaching? Who are you instructing and calling to believe and trust God? Those who are younger, are you heeding? Are you absorbing the truth that God is passing on to you? Are you looking for godly examples to imitate so that you can grow? I pray that by God's grace, we will do this. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for its powerful truth to call us to love you, to fear you, to obey you. And thinking about Moses there with the, the congregation of Israel about to go in the promised land, his message to call them to, to fear God and love God. I ask God that you would um, impress us with that same message. Maybe there's somebody who is, is here today and we're talking about this fearing God and loving God and it's just absent in their heart and their minds um, that they don't have a love for you that there isn't a desire um, to to give their lives to you. I ask, God, that you would impress on them their sin and their need to call upon you for forgiveness, to see Christ's work in their life as the only hope, and that you would draw them to yourselves. Think of those who are older who have walked with God and have a mature faith. God, please give them doors of opportunity to minister and to speak God's truth to those who are younger, that they would see um, the opportunity that they have and the responsibility that they have. Thinking of those who are younger, those who, of us who need to learn and grow from their example, God, help us to heed your word, to absorb it and to see it lived out in life. That there would be a faithful generation who comes up, who wants to love you and serve you here at LifePoint, here in the state of California, and, and even those who would give their lives to go overseas to share your gospel. God, that you would do a work in hearts and lives. Please humble us, bring us to dependence upon you by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.